My dear congregation, all of Jesus' works and words in this chapter boil down to one verse. If you would look at your Bibles, John chapter 6 at verse 53, then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. It all comes down to to this. Everything we've done over the past several sermons from John chapter 6 boils down to the same thing. Except ye eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. You'll notice, or perhaps you have never noticed, that John makes no record of the Lord's Supper. He's the only one of the gospel writers that leaves out conspicuously this central event of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as is often the case with John, he gives you something in its place. Instead, in John, we actually get a deep and prolonged look into the other aspects of that night in the upper room with his disciples before he went out to Gethsemane. For instance, by the time we get to chapter 14, we see Jesus' great care for his disciples when he says those famous words, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many mansions, and I go and prepare a place for you. Chapter 15, we hear Jesus speak about the disciples abiding in the vine, that he is the vine and they are the branches, and the Father is the husbandman. In chapter 16, the encouragement that uh, that Jesus has promised, uh, be of good courage, for I have overcome the world. In chapter 17, that blessed chapter, we hear the high priestly prayer of Jesus to his Father, praying for his disciples, for their safekeeping, praying for all of his people, that would believe through their word. And that last great desire, Father, I will that those whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am. All of that happened in the upper room. All of that happened within earshot of the disciples. But the Lord's Supper itself is missing. In John 6, we find John's Lord's Supper passage. In fact, we find a fuller commentary on what the Lord's Supper is in John 6 than we do in any of the other gospel accounts. In fact, we can't read this chapter in any other way than a fuller explanation of what exactly Jesus meant when he said, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. 
And in those words he's going to utter in the not too distant future when he says, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. For the remission of sins, drink ye all of it. Everything will be tumbling into place in the mind and and ears of the disciples as he spoke those words because of what he said in John chapter 6. And so we will look for a few moments at this event to help us understand something of what the Lord's Supper is. And our theme will be walking forward to Calvary, part 13. And our thoughts will be three, the shocking words. Secondly, the ensuing fallout. And then lastly, the disciples' dependence. Walking forward to Calvary. Part 13, the shocking words, the ensuing fallout, and the disciples' dependence. First, the shocking words. Well, before we get into those shocking words, we need to understand where Jesus is geographically. Verse 59 says, These things said he in the synagogue, as he taught in Capernaum. So everything he's saying now uh, from verse 21 forward is speaking, uh, in the, he's speaking in the presence of those in the synagogue. Obviously, the rulers of the synagogue would be there, which is the, the class of Pharisees. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. So the Jews mentioned in verse 41 are the Pharisees, the rulers of the synagogue system, and there would be good reason for them to take exception with what Jesus had just said. Very good reason. The Old Testament clearly forbids eating one thing. Well, there's many things that forbids eating, but certainly above all else, one thing, and that's blood. You don't eat blood. You don't take the life of another being and consume it into uh, your, your own being. Genesis 9, verse 4, it says, But flesh with the life thereof, and that means blood, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Leviticus 17 says the same thing, essentially. And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. Don't eat blood. Deuteronomy 12. Only be sure that thou eat not the blood, for the blood is the life, and thou mayest not eat the life with flesh. Blood had to be cooked out of all of the meat. So no rare or medium rare steaks in Israel. And certainly no eating of another person's flesh and drinking another person's blood 
So the reaction of the people here is understandable. It would have confused everyone, especially for the 12 disciples who were up to this point all in when it came to the Lord. It's problematic to say the least. How can he expect us to do what he is saying? And again, their inability or incapacity to get to the heart of what Jesus was saying, of course, is because it had not yet been revealed to them by the Father or through the Holy Spirit. But but there was still this sense of, can he give us something more than we have? Can we have our bellies full again? Because as you'll notice in this chapter, those who are following the Lord keep on talking about bread, more bread, more bread. So it stems from bellies being filled just a few days ago. More bread, please. That's all they wanted. Evermore, give us this bread, they say in verse 34. And Jesus explains to them that he is the true bread that came down from heaven, from the Father, and that they are to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And you can understand how at that moment, even in the disciples, the blood would have drained from their their faces and confusion would have covered their eyes. And Jesus points out their problem in verse 36. But I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. You're not understanding, the Lord is saying, what is truly happening here. And in all of this confusion and this coming and going and all of the different discussions that the Lord is having with them about very deep spiritual matters, the Lord is not concerned. He is not worried. He has no fear, verse 37, because all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Not one of them will be missing. And on the human side, as as the soul looks at Christ, he that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. The two work in tandem. None that the Father gives to Christ will ever stay away. Ultimately, they'll be brought to Him because of the Father. But in their coming, in their going to the Lord, they will experience absolute reception from Him. He says in verse 38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And they murmured, verse 41. They murmured. They began to have feelings of animosity and to start to pick apart the 
the words of the Lord and among themselves stirring up some contention and strife. Verse 42, they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he saith, I came down from heaven? Heaven? We know where you are from, Jesus. We know who your parents are. And you may be proud of your hometown, Nazareth, but it's not heaven. And did we mention we know your parents, Mary and Joseph? They were still missing it, and understandably so. These are hard words to wrap your mind around for the first time. Even for someone who spends a lifetime studying the Scriptures, it can be a very difficult portion of Scripture to understand. But the problem is solved in verse 44. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draws him. That's the premise of this morning. That's the principle of this morning. That no man can come unto this supper in true faith except the Father draw him or her. And that's the kicker. That's the key to the passage. Unless the Father draws you to the Son, you will remain in darkness to truly spiritual things. It's an irresistible drawing. There is no force, no person, no sinner, no stubbornness that can withstand the drawing power of the Father to the Son. It's an impossibility. And some he draws by heavier pulls than others. In fact, the word draw there in that passage um, is, is the Greek word helkou. Uh, and what's interesting about that word It's the word that was used when the disciples drew their nets out of the water into the boat. Or when a bucket is let down into a well and it draws up the water. That's the word. The water didn't draw itself. The water didn't propel itself uh, into uh, the bucket or up to the hands of the retriever. It has no power, but it was drawn by another's power, and that's what the Lord is saying. Those that are made alive, Jesus is saying, they hear, they listen. That the one who has been given ears to hear, hears. Then these words, though new, take on a different character. The flesh and blood thing, that is going to clear itself up in time. But for now, take in his teaching. Hear what Jesus is saying. Bask in it. Unless you eat 
the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Secondly, the ensuing fallout. By now, Jesus had many disciples. Uh, Some scholars suggest upwards of around 70 disciples by now. Given the thousands that were fed, and considering his other miracles and teachings to to this point, he would have had his core 12, and then he would have had an, an outer a ring of also people who would call themselves disciples to this point. And they weren't chosen like the twelve, but certainly they were considered to be the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. He was at the height of his popularity here. And here is where the Lord, not caring about what others think of him, comes out. He's aiming higher He's aiming farther in his words. He's actually aiming, congregation, at what faith does. Verse 52, the Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I find it interesting that there was even a debate The Jews, therefore, strove among themselves. They had this internal debate amongst themselves. How is it possible that he could be saying this? There was obviously a majority that said this is madness. This is against every principle we know in the the law of Moses. In verse 60, they come out with it. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? And it doesn't say which disciples are saying this either. It could very well have been a a segment within the twelve also. It just says the disciples. They're saying this is a hard saying. Who, Who can hear this? And the the, the hard saying there, this is a hard saying, is is better understood today as something intolerable being said. What he's saying is intolerable. It's what he's saying is unspeakable. What he is saying is unimaginable. What he's saying is exasperating. What he's saying is maddening. That's what the word means. And instead at this point, now that they are all offended, instead of Jesus now explaining or nuancing his words to make it a little bit more palatable, he doubles down in verse 53. Verily, verily, which means truly, truly, amen, amen, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. That's the nail in the coffin. People were checking out after that. People were collecting their things and heading for the exit. Because of these words, unless, unless, that's what the word accept means, unless, 
Unless ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. Listen to that again. Unless ye eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. There are people that in their mind they've been able to construct this safe place. There are people who in their mind for one reason or another think that they can enter the blessings of Christ, the blessings of salvation accidentally. In other words, they think that somehow in this constructed safe place that they've, that, they've, that they've made for their own mind and heart, that they can have the benefits of Christ without faith ever verbing itself. They think that there is at least a, a slim possibility that, that deep, deep down, there could very well be new life in me. But I'm such a tangled mess of contradictions and sins that my fear outweighs my faith so that I will sit. I will sit. And I will sit all my life, even. And not ever eat or drink Jesus. But dear one, think of it. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. There's no accidental heaven. There is a heaven and a Savior By faith. And faith is a verb. Matthew 10, Jesus says this, But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And this is in part what the Lord's Supper is. Primarily, it is the communing with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself by faith. But it is also a testimony. It is a verbing of faith. It's the demonstration of that life in the soul that Jesus is speaking about. And at some point, it has to come out. And notice the order of the words. Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. We can deconstruct it and rebuild it positively to get the meaning. Which would be this. They that eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man do so because they have life in them. That's the necessary consequence. They have to do it. 
They are compelled to do it because of that life. For days, I watched a a matriarch elephant over the span of days. I didn't watch for days. A matriarch elephant lead her large family across the Serengeti with her trunk in the air, children. Trunk was constantly in the air like this. Walking, walking through endless desert. And I thought, where are they? Where are they going? Why such an incredibly long walk with their trunks in the air like this? Hundreds of miles they walked. And they did so because they could tell in the air that someone in their family had died. It was a departed, dearly departed member of that matriarch's family. And so they all arrived to, I don't know, it looked like paying their respects. It was so unreal. But when they got there, there were so many others. Different families had come also from all around the Serengeti to pay their respects to this departed, you know, old female elephant. The one whose heart has been touched by saving grace operates in a similar way. They can't help it. They are drawn, even at times from very far away. It's innate in them. It's it's an irresistible drawing. They are the bee and Christ is the flower. They are the the sail and Christ is the wind. They have to be where He is. And it's all according to the drawing of the Father in verse 44. And it's ultimately irresistible. And don't believe the petulant lie that one who is born again, indwelled by the Spirit of God, motivated by a new principle, could ever, under any ordinary circumstances, not be where their Savior is. Under normal circumstances. It's contrary to True magnetic north and south. Because they know that if they don't, they have no life in them. Zero. And so, congregation, the Lord's Supper is verbing faith. The action required by our Lord that demonstrates the, the, the life that is a glow within. So don't swallow the bait that you can remain unmoved by what you see here. Unmoved by today's text. Deal with it. Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. 
Well, lastly, and here we have in verses um, 61 through uh, 67, a a precious uh, passage uh, full of instruction. And Jesus knew himself that his disciples murmured at it. He said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? What is he saying there exactly? Does this offend you? With all of the miracles that have happened and everything that I'm explaining to you, does this offend you? You're looking for another miracle. The Lord understands that. And he says to them, What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? What if you right now, Jesus is saying, were to see me ascend before your eyes right to the Father? He's saying that would do nothing for you. Think of that. That would do nothing for you. What if I did that miracle before you? Would that change your mind? No. That's the implied answer. If I were to ascend here and now, right before your eyes, back to the Father, even then you would not understand, you would not believe the words that I'm telling you. And that's a very powerful statement. One of the most powerful, I think, our Lord ever spoke, at least, at least for us, congregation. Because he's saying to you and to me, if you think that some miracle is needed before you will believe something absolutely remarkable and astounding, something earth-shattering as proof of my words to you, it wouldn't change a thing for you. What if I were to do it, Jesus is saying? It wouldn't change a thing. What if, dear one, an angel from heaven came down to, to you today with all of the, the answers to your deepest questions and laid every one of them out before you with their answer? What if Jesus himself were to appear to you, as some in the past have claimed? It wouldn't change a single solitary thing for you. Because Jesus says, in answer to his own rhetorical question, it is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profit nothing. What you see and taste and smell and hear He's saying, in comparison, prophets nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Verse 64, because there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and whom should betray him. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my Father. It's all one-sided. It's all of God's doing. 
Verse 66, from that time, many of his his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They went back to their regularly scheduled lives. And I will actually have more to say on that tonight. But Jesus turns to his disciples, his beloved 12, and says this in verse 67, Will ye also go away? Have you ever considered that that question? Will ye also go away? Another way to put it would be, do you also want to leave me? Such a simple question and yet profound in its implications. It wasn't just the question of physical departure, but a question of spiritual love. Many people had come to Jesus from far and wide seeking his wisdom, seeking his teachings. They they stayed with him for, for some time, captivated by his words, obviously captivated by his actions, even if they didn't always fully understand them. But now as the time drew near for his ultimate sacrifice, many were beginning to falter in their faith because we're approaching now the final months of the Lord Jesus' ministry. They're faltering in their faith. They enjoyed Jesus' food, but were unwilling to accept the spiritual nourishment that he offered. They were content to be fed by him, but they were not ready to embrace a life that was fully dependent upon him, even if they didn't understand it all. And some did leave Christ, and some still do. Why? Because they have no profound sense of their need for him, ultimately. They have no sweet pleasure in his presence. They have no abiding faith in his person, his work, his mission. His word. In other words, they have no union of heart with him. And if that describes you this morning, then then the table is not for you. But this posed a great challenge to the apostles too, who were who were only human. Susceptible to the same questions and temptations as anyone else. And as dozens went home, the question of whether to stay or to leave weighed heavily on their minds. Jesus knew that this was a pivotal moment. Not for him, but for them. He asked them not to... uh, He asked them... This question, not to, not to drive them away, but to draw them in. He, he was seeking here to strengthen their faith and ignite their zeal, drawing uh, from them the, the, the powerful confession, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the the Son of the living God. 
And I know for a certainty that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was talking about when he spoke about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They were absolutely baffled by it. But they knew that Jesus was their all and that he would make it all fit. They, they understood in that whole confession, to whom shall we go, was literally their confession saying, there is no other place on earth, there is no other rabbi or shaman or anyone else who has what you have. Even though we, we obviously don't understand it all. Even though you're saying things that right now really confuse us, Lord. But there is no other place for us to be. There's no other place for us to go, even in our confusion, even in our lack of understanding, but to Thee. And that, oh, my congregation, is the word of faith. That's true faith. That's a clinging, refuge-taking, dependent faith. It's not like, well, there's no one else to go to. It's saying there is no one else to go to. Somehow it is all wrapped up in thee. That's what faith sees. He knew what they needed. And he drew it out. Without question, in that fateful night in the upper room, Jesus said, when he said these words, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And this cup is the New Testament in my blood for the remission of sins. Drink ye all of it. They knew in that moment what that was. They all would have called to mind collectively in an instant what Jesus' words were in Capernaum, in the synagogue. Dear one, please listen to me. You do not need to have it all together this morning. The disciples didn't. They still didn't, even at the Lord's Supper. And that's okay. The Lord is that patient. All that is required by Him is that we say, Lord, to whom shall I go? All He is requiring is a hunger and a thirsting after Him and His righteousness. For those who can say, I don't know it all as I should, or will one day, but today this I know, Thou alone, precious Savior, has the words of eternal life for me. It's the call of the, of the heart to God. It's the, it's the bleeding of the desire. It's the It's the take me to the shepherd 
the sheep's bleeding cry. It's take me to the ark. As the dove whispered as it roams the waters. Take me to the haven of rest is the cry for the storm embattled traveler. Take me home to my father is the cry of the wayward son. And so attending this supper is to say as a poor empty sinner feed me bread of life. Feed me. How I need this token infused into my unsteady heart. The strength that I need to make it through this life. The blood of Christ cleanseth from all sin. It's the reason why true disciples never go away from Christ. Because he holds them tightly. Read his own words, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. That's the ancient compact of God's covenant engagement. I will put my fear into their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. And so we come then, dear ones, to this hour. Will you also go away? Or this morning, will you reach beyond your feelings to something deeper? Will you say this morning with your feet, Lord, to whom shall I go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Or more at the table in a moment. Amen.